You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 36 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode, I am joined by Fred from Utah. Fred has a lifelong interest in alchemy and tantra and is a computer systems analyst and a tantric healer. Uh, thanks for uh, being on the podcast. You're welcome. So tell me a little bit uh, about who you are and what your main interest is. Well, I'm 67. Um, I've been uh, data computers most of my life. Health, healthcare, healthcare software, uh, group health consulting, things like that. Oh, I've lived a pretty normal life in a lot of ways. I've been sick a lot of the time, but also worked full time, had children and grandchildren. Now I spend a lot of time uh, putting things together and finishing up my, uh, you know, my alchemy for this life. It's been a very busy time, I believe. And you're mainly interested in something called tantric alchemy? Yeah, yeah. So, so what is this? Well, it uses. Do you know what you you know what Kundalini yoga is? Yes, but uh, explain anyway for the listeners. It's it's an energy yoga that deals a lot with the chakras and the energy flows, perceiving them, uh, working with another person with them. Um, for instance, in in the tantric alchemy, uh, one receives. Shakti pot, which is the um, Shakti is the female uh, divinity supplying the life force in, in the one scheme of talking about things. So, and you receive this jolt, quite literally, of, of what is often quite ecstatic energy, but it's also all information. It's, it can change one's understanding completely. Uh, and that occurs when people open up to certain divine energies together in the alchemy. Or just as a priest or whatever with somebody. But, uh, and it uh, adds information to one's being. It's the cause of growth, of evolution. It's sort of uh, one of the things that helps us do what we do. The reason I like the uh, tantric, well, with the sexual practice, that's very helpful. It's very direct. It works with the energies very directly. Uh, it's it's, a, it's often very meditative, you know, combined with the Kundalini in a lot of ways. Though the exact methods may vary, they vary from person to person. I don't think there's anybody who can agree on what orthodoxy is or ought to be. You're aware of that problem, I'm sure. So, a lot of different interpretations, so understanding is often uh, what suffers. So, when, when we do uh, a tantric exercise a, involving the body, the direct generation of certain energies, these, these are 
how do I say, shared between the person, for instance, in Tantra, one of the objects of this is uh, erotic trance or tantric trance, where two people or more can get uh, experience the same things together. So uh, whether it's a, in a whole circle invoked into a situation or whether it's just a pair, you're sharing the same energy in the uh, same chamber in the language of E.J. Gold. We're in the same chamber together. Um, and we can move. We can go other, other places, other chambers together. And it's different than being alone. Uh, the other person brings what they are to it, and one cannot help but be changed. What's the difference between just tantric sex and uh, tantric alchemy? The sex can, uh, it depends upon the person teaching it. There may not be any difference, or it may be all the difference in the world. So one form of um, tantric sex might be the uh, two or three hour uh, ex or longer extended intercourse type of, uh, and that's very meditative at the same time. It's not, it's not what you would think, it looks like two people sitting there meditating. Uh, face to face. Uh, it isn't necessarily what? How shall we say? A very active sexual thing. It's, it's sexual in the nature of how it connects. But when you're connecting, say, those, the chakras involved in the genitals, and having this flow through each other, I don't know how to explain it exactly. But there are various energy flows one engages with, and it's like activating the chakras and going up and out the crown, but you're doing it together and it's different. Um, in the, in the uh, tantric alchemy, one has of course done early in the game, uh, the alchemical marriage within oneself. That's, that's, that's just sort of an openers. Uh, then you do this sort of similar thing with another person. I don't know how you uh, picture us put together, but I kind of picture like a multi-dimensional database. Uh, when when one combines with an, uh, these experiences with another person, one gets with it every variation that they have of that particular chamber, the infinite number of variations, and it's like you raising one person exponentially you know, to the other. It's it's that there's a for every variation of the person or the world, however you look at it, suddenly you have a variation, a combined variation of a, a zillion variations of the other person combined in that, and every single version of oneself has that multiplication effect. It increases the possibilities that one can shape one's life out of. Um, I, I'm not sure how you look at what the, what the goal of this whole thing is, but for me it's the evolution of the being into a um, whatever it is, whatever that means. We become something more than what we were. We 
learn to live differently. Learn to live consciously, learn to live uh, with knowledge and understanding of what's going on around us, of other people, of, of how the universe works, how the metaphysics works. It changes everything. So how, how old did you say you were again? I'm 67. 67. So uh, when did you start practicing tantric alchemy? Uh, okay. Now tantric alchemy, it, it, actually I started in third grade. It wasn't sexual at all at that point. But I was able to go into the into trance with people and do energy work. Um, uh, it was just something I woke up to, something I was born to or with somehow. All sorts of things happened that year, and um, suddenly I was aware that there was something else about life that I hadn't known about prior to that. So, you know, and that's when I started then uh, finding I could go into the in with these people and we'd have discussions we'd talk about things we'd share moods and things like this and generally they wouldn't even remember them it was uh very strange but uh it, it grew and so you know i never had a uh, uh what you would say maybe a, a normal relationship meeting a, a girl or woman, it was always sort of suddenly just spotting them right there. They spot me and it's okay. <laughs> you know, that's, uh, we both accept that that's what's what. It's, I don't know how to say that it happens, but it, it happens. I never, you know, it's not something I have to go chase or look for. I just look and suddenly there is that particular person and they noticed me at the same time. So, uh, it changes life in that way. These are the people that's always sensitive. I mean, it's, it isn't about, it, it's about the energy. It's about uh, being able to go and do these meditations. Uh, and, you know, I have people then that unload their life history sometimes looking for the solution to a particular problem or release of a trauma. There's a lot of uh, trauma release. I do a lot of work with people who have past life uh, death traumas. Uh, that's, a, that's a very interesting area of it. That's part of uh, working with uh, guiding the dead or helping people through, you know, get over their previous lives and death. Uh, there's a lot of trauma attached to that for many people. But what what have you what do you think has been the main wisdom you've gained from doing these practices your whole life? Well, I'm thoroughly non-dualist in how I I find this world. You know, it's to me it's like a uh, virtual hologram. Hologram. Uh, all sorts of things happen, and 
I don't need to have it happen in a normally explainable way, so things just happen sometimes. Weird coincidences. But it affects it in that way because I'm, I'm sort of telling everybody has those experiences. A lot of people just don't remember them. I've been through those experiences with people many a time. Uh, you know, there was one time, for instance, um, my wife and I, just after we moved here to Salt Lake, we'd been skiing all season, and the season was over, and we were on the floor of our new apartment exercising. And somebody knocked on the door, got up and opened it, and we both got shot. The next instant, we're both on the floor, and the first words out of my wife's mouth was, don't open the door. He was freaked out for six months about opening the door. Um, they didn't come back there. I found out later that that apartment had previously been rented by a drug dealer. But that was a, one of those strange experiences. I've had lots of experiences like that. And, and, you, and you both, you and your wife, you both shared the vision when it happened. Yes. Yes, she saw me get shot, and then she got shot. I saw him bring up the gun. I didn't see her, but I went. I I was gone by then. Um, car accidents, similar things. Ski accidents, hitting the hitting the rocks head first after falling down the ski. And suddenly, I'm uh, two trails over. swooping in for a landing and wondering what I'm doing still alive. And there was a little interlude there, you know, where, as people have sometimes described in uh, near-death experiences and so on, of, of talking with uh, a couple of guides about what was going on and whether I uh, was willing to come back into that same life or not. To recur, I guess, is the, uh, how E.J. Gold speaks of it, recurrence. I find that I recur a lot. Not so much as when I was younger. I had an awful lot of, uh, I guess, fatal car accidents before I finally learned how to live with a car. What do you mean recur? Like reincarnate or? Uh, well, uh, yes, it's a reincarnation, but within the same life. One can recur in that life over and over and over again. Um, so, you know, and it, it can be reborn at any time, not a physical birth or death, reborn, and, and can die at really any time. And it's normally, how should we say, quite invisible if one doesn't remember. Otherwise, there's life is a series of chapters. We just think we got there the way we got there. One has, when one is consciously recurring, that and then that opens up that one can have a continuous consciousness for a very, very long time. It's the Groundhog Day dilemma. Lives the same day over and over again, but it is never the same twice. Never. And because just going through it 
once changes it for the next time because you have that experience and you can't recreate it. It doesn't work that way. Everything goes wrong. So one gets a evolves in the process of that life. He went through very definite stages in, in himself. First, he wanted to memorize his way through the life. That didn't work. And wanted to get what he wanted. That didn't work. And finally, he found that the only thing he could take with him from day to day was changes in himself. So he worked to improve himself as best he could, and that he could take with him. He graduated from one day to the next, you might say, within the context of the movie. <clears throat> but one, that's very, very much like my experience, except it isn't just one day, it can be much longer periods, and uh, it can change considerably over and over. And, you know, this is where you might say the intersection between a physical alchemy and a uh, spiritual alchemy might come in. I had some vitamin deficiency problems. Well, or maybe I didn't. You see, that's always the question. Before I started looking, did I find the world on which the vitamins were the thick, complete fix for my problems? Or were they always that way? And, you know, when you get the unexpected in a physical uh, alchemy, I look at it as having changed to the world where that can happen. So the so you get that result. So you get the stone because you went to the, change the nature of the world until it reacts that way. Same way, same thing. That's the intersection. So, you know, I don't know whether finding the cure for all my illnesses in the vitamins was alchemy or whether it was just just the way things already worked in the world. I mean, what variation of the world are we in? How many variations are there? You know, sort of the quantum multi-universe theory or string theory. We have all these small variations wrapped tight within the thing. And as you switch what you see, as you decode the hologram, you see it and experience it differently. Um, as I say, I'm, I'm largely, uh, metaphysics-wise, quite uh, compatible with uh, Ramakrishna, the uh, metaphysics of Ramakrishna and Vivekananda. Uh, I think they've got it nailed pretty well, as far as the description goes. And how, do, how does it go? That's a very long description, but basically... Uh, they're, they're non-dualists. They, they helped found the non-dual uh, revival in the 19th century where basically one, when one follows oneself to the depths at one's heart, one is the absolute. There is no difference in identity. One's deepest identity is, is God or whatever. That we live in this fractal or holographic world that we see, we sense, because in the particular way we do, because that's how, you might say, we have the 
holographic decoder ring. So, and it gives our version of it to us. I've done a lot of exploring, a lot of exploring of how these various things work, how one can change one's experience how, by changing oneself, which is the only thing we can change, our own being. And that changes everything. Um, I, I have ceased believing in this world as a solid, immutable thing, which seems to be the most popular view. You know, I just don't, I, I can't see it that way. It's too fluid. It, it changes too often. It's, you know, I, I, I can see infinite variations of a holographic world, of a fractal world, but not of a physical universe. It, it Somehow it just doesn't gel for me in that way. And once I I changed how I view. I became much more uh, successful in my practices, shall we say. It, they became much more routine and predictable and easy to occur. There's no doubt I'm going to have experiences wh whenever we sit down to work that we do and that, that things happen. And it happens over time. It doesn't all happen at once. But real changes, when a real change finally happens, it happens immediately. There is no past, there is no present, there is a future, there is just the present. It happens now, and there is no history that it was ever any different. It was always that way once it changes. So, unless one pays a special type of attention, it goes right by. Is there a way to do uh, tantric alchemy on your own, or do you? Does it require at least another person? Well, it's always started first. One has to uh, complete, you know, the alchemical marriage. But that can be done with or without another person. Uh, in the uh, Tibetan version, they teach how to invoke spirits to do it with you. Um, that's, well, you know, that's not, I don't know if you call that alone or not. Physically alone, perhaps. But you invoke, uh, in the Tibetan, they invoke, learn to invoke spirits uh, to engage in practice with. And the, and actually, so the people that you're interacting with don't have to be physically present. It can happen anywhere. I can talk to a person on the phone and get in trance with them. You know, so it's not, it doesn't necessarily, whether you're doing it with somebody or not, it doesn't necessarily have to take place in a physical sense. Um, I enjoy the physical, uh, I was sick for a lot of years and couldn't even do it, much of the way the physical, anything. Um, so you do what you have to do, what you can do. And there's so many, so many methods, so many things.
uh, the a yoni puja, for instance, can be done with a symbolic, symbolically with they they use they use stone uh, yonis, they use photographs or drawings, paintings, you know, as a meditation object. Uh, you know, so no, you don't have to, but it sure opens up. It's uh, I like it better. I'm not. I'm not alone. I very much like having a friend, a companion, somebody doing very deep, very, you know, somebody, you have to be able to trust all the way down to the depths of everything, utterly with the other person. It's a a very intense experience. I don't know of any more intense type of relationship. It means you can't have any uh, secrets from each other. No secrets from each other, not possible. But there's no reason they need secrets from each other. What is the best source if somebody wants to learn more about this and study it and get into it? Where would they turn? I would actually the book I would get get is the Understanding Tantra by J.R. Hall. He's a modern Jungian therapist who decided the only way he was ever going to understand this business about Tantra, because there's so many different things said, so many different places, was to do it himself. And I think he wrote an excellent book, an excellent book, uh, describing it. He comes very close to how I might have described it, so on. Um, I'd probably use more physics and quantum physics and computeries and things like that because I tend to see things like multi-dimensional databases as an organizational scheme. But that's really under the scenes anyway. <clears throat> it's, it's, a, it's a way that it's a filing system that allows me to have an object I can work with. It doesn't have to be that way. It's just a handy handy archetype to use for understanding Has it been difficult, considering your view of the world and reality, to to exist in it with other so-called uh, more normal people that view it as only material? Oh, that can cause plenty of uh, disagreement. Um, I... I, I, you know, I'm, I'm very much, well, for instance, uh, trying to preserve the natural world, trying not to damage that. Uh, I, I find it abominable how people treat each other. Um, mostly, I, I don't have a lot to do with a lot of the people. Their, their, their interests. I, I don't care who won the last basketball game. It has, it is nothing in my life. Uh, so we don't even intersect practically. I meet the people I meet. We hang out or do what we do. Uh, and we, inter- well, you know, I have family dinners and, 
we have fun and everything, but there's no meaningful talk, you know. When 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 you're there, you talk with, about what people need to talk about, about family things, you know. Uh, you put on the appropriate uh, appropriate mask, as the uh, Rock, Robert D. Rock, the Master Game put it, the persona. We all have many personas we can put on. I've I've been a photographer. I've been an insurance agent. I've been, you know. A lot of years as systems analyst, I have all sorts of different personas. I sit down and play bridge, and I go into my bridge persona. You know, so it's a matter of opening the window into a different part of myself, you might say, for me to deal with uh, people uh, in the more ordinary world. I just bring myself into there and, you know, intersect there. That they can't intersect elsewhere. You said that you could guide or help people uh, go through the loss of a loved one. Uh, it's not so much been the loss of a loved one, per se, uh, as the loss of their own life, their own death trauma from a previous life. At least that's what tends to people who tend to come to me, ones that have had that type of uh, problem. I've had, I had that myself. How can such a past life death trauma manifest? Okay. Um, there was one woman who I knew would wake up and have nightmares in the night. And she would sit up and act out a fight and say things that were too garbled to understand really but it was always the same things so it was like she ran this program about every night uh, waking up in this not waking up sitting up while in a nightmare and acting out uh, turns out the It, it, you know, I, I worked with her, and after some while, I don't know, probably took two years to get it uncovered. Uh, it turned out she had been uh, kidnapped, raped, murdered, you know, and that the fight was a fight that when they were taking her down the first time, she grabbed a wrench and was uh, trying to fight them off. And that's what the arm movements were, and, she, and what she said, you know. I, Learned what she said in the whole business. Uh, she doesn't have the nightmares anymore. Um, another another woman. Um, she, after working through the layers of stuff in this life, suddenly it opened up, and we. Were, I experienced it with the person. So I experienced it firsthand. We're standing in a uh, concentration camp. And there was this teenage girl who was so, I don't know what, damaged in there, in the camp there. She never wanted to live again. She, she, and uh, 
when that was released, she she stopped being chronically sick. She stopped uh, all sorts of things cleared up, and she stopped being chronically ill and dying and things like that. So she got married again and, and had a fairly normal, happy life after that. Another woman, oh, there's another very clear one. This one was very interesting on manifestation. She was, uh, oh, I would say maybe 1,500 or something, looked like from the, uh, give or take a couple hundred years, you know. Uh, she was run through with a sword through the stomach inside of a, uh, a piece of furniture she was hiding in on uh, some sort of raid, and she was run through with a sword. Now, she had all sorts of abdominal problems all her life until that was, you know, from female problems and digestive problems and this and that, all these things in this one area, all this pain of her stomach over and over again. That's as she's released these things, one layer after another has been dealt with, and her problems now are not related to it. But she had a lot of related problems from that. Health problems. All, all my life I've had a, a unexplained phobia for amputation. Maybe this is a past life experience. I, I don't like to see it in a movie. I don't like people talking about it. It just gives me the creeps. That certainly could be. I don't know. You know, if you meditate on it, uh, regress. Well, you have to get back before your current birth, and then it'll usually take you straight to whatever the problem is. Yeah. So when you when you have these visions, or when when you regress like this, how how do you do it? It's meditation you do together with the other person. Yeah. Actually, I, I sit there and we talk, and as as we talk, I I sort of feel my way. Into the into the trance with them. I don't know how to explain it. And as long as they respond with the you know, proper responses as as I go in there, you know, uh, we can be talking or not talking. It doesn't matter particularly. Um, but a lot of people need to talk, and then you sort of guide it in that direction with the words to what's being opened up. Uh, until it does. And then for me, I, just, I see it and experience it, and it's like it takes a keystone out of it or something. It seems, taking that little piece seems to unlock it. So this whole structure of, of fear, of uh, revulsion, whatever, can sort of tumble down like an arch with keystone taken out. Um, it, it's like it's gotten jammed, all jammed in together and held in place by all the things around it. Uh, so people, you, you, one keeps sort of looking, and, has, and that's best done with two people. Very definitely. It takes, I've, you know, I don't know if it happening, not, I've seen it happen in groups. I've sat in circles uh, with some of the, some of the goddess circles I, I practiced with. Uh, and people's things come up and they do regressions right there and everything with the support of an entire, of the whole group. So it's not always just two people. It can be done with a dozen people or five. Usually in a group, 
you deal with end up dealing with the person who hits their stuff first. You know. Whereas one to one, you always hit it. It's it's kind of a specialized uh, thing. Some people get very involved in working in that kind of thing. Others don't. Uh, and then part of it is learning the attitude, learning of, okay, I can just observe this without having to react to it, to see what it is. Because the stories we tell ourselves about things are usually far worse than seeing the event. You know, because we all die in every life. Some of them, though, leave some real trauma behind. I don't know why we traumatize some and not others. You know, most of them are any great fun. Is it possible to, uh, you can regress and look at past lives, but what about going forward? And that, is that impossible, you think? Or? Ah, okay. Taking... Uh, how to put this? There, everything happens in one cosmic instant. So, what we have then is this one cosmic instant sort of time sliced into an infinity of time. Uh, maybe with speed of light compression or something like that built in. It seems to be some factor in it somewhere that things are get are highly compressed, maybe a speed of light type of uh, compression. And so what on one level, for instance, appears to be just a pixel, opens up into a whole world of worlds. Um, time all of all of the parts of me, for instance, that have ever existed, ever will exist, are all all at the same time. Where does the pointer point? I, I I look at it as the the one I'm getting generally advice from, and I've been on both ends of it now. Is my future self? So. I, I've been, you know, I, I've been on that end giving my infant self some advice or my younger self. I've seen it from both ends now. Uh, as I have gotten further in age, of course, the higher self that gives, or, or newer self or whatever, more advanced self, future self, advances further into the future. Um, in this whole process, Paul talks about it, the process of going through and as in sort of a shamanism of adding, finding our lost parts and adding them in, reintegrating things we've closed off through traumas, through whatever, through ignorance and adding them back in. They all exist at the same time. And so it's just a matter of, 
of finding the connection to them. So, as far as there being, here's here's the thing. There isn't a definitive single future. There are uncountable possibilities of futures, uncountable numbers of possibilities. So there is no one, but there is a future, a future self at variable existing there that which gives me advice from time to time. You know, don't do this, do this. Watch out for advice like that sometimes. Or just sometimes start, you know, when you think about it, when you think about something, where's that coming from? Where's the seed for a particular thought coming from? I don't know. Coincidentally, I happen to have a lot of right thoughts at the right time. It took me a long time to learn to trust uh, my future self. But it didn't make any obvious mistakes. And I regretted not doing those things later, normally that I was advised. Uh, So, you know, Things have gone very much more smoothly since I learned to accept the advice. So it's just like go with the flow and go with your first idea, not the one you come up with after you've thought about the first. Oh, well, I go and I think with the first idea, but I don't know where it necessarily takes me. It often takes me through loops through half a dozen different ways, looking at it from every which way but Sunday and one thing starts getting more gelling, sort of. I, I look for a pattern that I'm matching. I don't know how. And I find elements of that pattern and home in on the th- part that has sort of all those elements. I don't know how to explain it. Um, it's a pattern, though. I, I look for, uh, I match a particular pattern. And so I just sort of feel for it. And it gets more and more until it gels and say, ah, that's it. So it often has that an element of what that first idea was, but maybe that's just one corner of the picture. And I've had to add, you know, hundreds of other little pieces onto it. Uh, maybe I'm just slow on it. Maybe some people have it happen a lot faster. It spread across weeks for me sometimes as I think about something. And then another idea comes and it sort of grows like a crystal. Does that make sense? It, it, the pieces attach themselves and, and grow and form the structure. Mm-hmm. And it matches then whatever it needs to be for to change my understanding in a certain way. And that's really what we can change, how we understand things. That changes everything. Uh, knowing that I can learn from what I'm doing and not do it the same, not have the same outcome every time because I don't have to do the same thing every time, uh, makes change 
much easier. It becomes the norm. So in my in my relationship uh, with my partner, it's based on change. We know we each are going to be different just about every day in some way or another. We have differences in moods and, you know, so it's not, one must be able to respect the other person as their, as a realized individual that is their own thing, who is sharing something very, very deep and completely personal in, in creating our, ourselves together. Um, You know, uh, I don't know how else to say it. I, I'd be, we can talk the same language. We can talk about ideas. We're, we're, we're on the same page, more or less. And I, things happen so much faster with another person than they ever did for me alone. Uh, they're also, it's, it's a good, one can get rather obsessed on some things, doing things alone, that with a person, you might not. Uh, we, we, one of the advantages of working with somebody, they don't have the same blocks I have. I don't have the same blocks they have. So we can act, can act as mirrors to each other. Uh, EJ mentions that, that we act as mirrors to each other, and also the rock comes to effect. Generally, I will say or do something that is just going to be the most annoying thing that's going to hit one of her trigger points, or she mine. And in a normal relationship, that's a, could be the beginning of a fight. Of why are you doing this? Instead, it's a, oh, thank you. I just saw where that trigger is. You know, it's a very, it's, it has to be understood in a different way for it to work. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to stand each other. Because you can see, mirror the other person's flaws, the other person's, ah, flaws are the wrong word. It's, there's no such thing as perfection. I mean, it's just, what's the balance? They get to see what they don't want to see, I guess is what I mean. So in mirroring each other, we're showing the other person what they refuse to see. And then they can make use of that in their purification. Does that follow for you? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very intense way to work. It's a very intense way to live. Uh, it's, it's, it's on the edge all the time. I don't live in the comfortable hanging back from the edge territory. But I try to have fun, you know, living on the edge. I'm always looking for the next thing to solve. What's that? What's that next thing holding me back, holding me down? I don't, I don't like living in fear, you know? I, don't, I won't live in fear. And 
don't necessarily get rid of all the fears, but they all they need to be controlled as one goes uh, sees more and more of the wholeness uh, at a higher higher energy, not being and I don't know how to say it. Not it's best to be meditative and seeing a lot of these things as opposed to oh my god getting all upset. You know, that doesn't work. Uh, and what, it, there's cycles. One goes through. You know, you, you get some new territory. You go through it. You find where you're hitting up on the hard spots where you're grounding out or whatever, and you clean it up. And then you have a high-energy event that crystallizes it, compresses it or whatever. And... What had been complicated is simple. It's what had been where you were plus all the changes now becomes once again where you are. And then you have the room to make the changes again after making this, uh, I don't know, crystallization, you might call it. And one does that over and over again. Yeah, adding layer upon layer of uh, the pearl. Made up of layers, of basically snapshots of the entirety of ourselves periodically, of what we are, of our holographic soul. I don't, I don't know how else to describe it. Cool. What was that book you mentioned earlier again? So if people want to check it out about tantra, it's by J.R. Hall, and. It has been called Understanding Tantra. I'm not sure if that's its current marketing thing, but if you look up J.R. Hall, H-A-U-L-E, uh, and Tantra, you can't miss it. Finally, also, since you, you are located in, in Utah, I was wondering, uh, how, is the, how is it to live in, in the Mormon hologram? Because it's, it's very different, Utah, from all the other states in that respect. It sure is. Very different. Uh, I don't have a lot to do with the Mormon part of the world here. Um, when I first moved here with my wife, we were invited, but always to, well, we're having a church dance or a church barbecue or a church this. or We were never invited to anybody's house for a barbecue. We were never invited over for dinner we, or anything. It was always to the church. And we always refused. We didn't want to build our lives around the Mormon church. Uh, my my partner, her family's Mormon, and she sees them and you know, uh, is going to her mother's uh, singing performance tonight. But she's not Mormon anymore by a long shot. And uh, she just doesn't talk about anything with them. With her sisters, her brothers, and her mother. She just doesn't tell them what she does, how she does it, or anything else. So, uh, they can't agree on anything. So, and, you know, I don't have much to do with the Mormons. I, uh, Go and see other people. 
I hang out with the nudists. I hang out with uh, uh, the goddess groups and various other people that uh, do more interesting things. A nudist uh, camp in a Mormon state sounds like a complication. <laughs> well, it's the next state over. It's in Colorado, the Mormon of the uh, club, but there is a, a travel club here, and we rent swimming pools and things like this, and so there are parties and events. But uh, they not a landing club here. There have been some tries, but they haven't succeeded so far. There's, it would seem strange, but actually, there's no particular nothing against it happening, except you can't get water. They're not giving any well permits. There's no place you could build it where the land would be affordable where you could get water. That may seem like a strange idea, but out here in the desert, everything's limited by that. They did the calculation I saw the other day that Utah uses 8,000 acre feet more water right now each year than they have it coming into the state. So the water table was dropped. I, I came to Utah to ski. Best powder in the world. Didn't come for the Mormon church. You ski? Uh, not that much, no. I had about 10 years of season pass skiing after I moved here and worked nights or afternoons. Did a lot of skiing. That was good. Um, you know, it's like a lot like alchemy. You practice it. All sorts of interesting things can happen. But basically, I live my life. The alchemy has taken over my life. It's that. It's uh, what it's about at this point. And. Everything I do, well, for instance, uh, I'm taking on another project, and the project can be done as a point of view to serve alchemical purposes. It can create the necessary, you might say, energy and focus and whatever it takes to make the changes, so it's, it's useful. The way of ordinary life, you use what you, use what you have at hand to generate things. That works out pretty well. I live life. I try to enjoy it as best I can. I there's there's no rules saying how you have to do alchemy. So I believe I ought to enjoy it. Cool. Well, thank you for talking to me. You're welcome. Man. In episode 22, I talked to Matthew Lean, who makes music for an endangered world. And he has a song from his album Headwaters that is called What Do You Love? I thought a song with such a title and theme is a perfect ending for an episode about tantric alchemy. If you want to check out more of his music, go to www.matthewlien.com. That's matthewlien.com. I'll post a link in the program notes as usual. See you in about a week. Freedom is in the mind. I love a smooth operator, a snake of the snake and any sweet speculator. What do you love? I love a mind worth a million, through to the